Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Today we are going to learn really some of the deepest Jewish mysticism out there. I don't think I'm exaggerating. The, the Alter Rebbe in the Maimorim, in the discourses on the Siddur, as they were documented by the Mittler Rebbe, introduce most of the most revolutionary concepts that we find within Hasidic teaching. I actually believe that some of the things we're going to learn today are not even found in Kisve HaRizal and are unique to the discoveries within the milieu of Chabad Hasidus. And it is going to be mind-bending and positively thrilling, if you can follow. And I, um, that's my, my responsibility, to help you follow. So. Before I begin, let me gratefully and thankfully acknowledge today's class sponsors, Ian and Sarah Maggot. May Hashem help that their desires and wishes should be fulfilled in the most wonderful way, and there should be good news from them, from their children, and Be'ezrat Hashem from their children. So we're learning the Mimer which is called Lahoven Inyan Tkiyah Shofar, to better understand what it is that the sounding of the shofar is all about. I'm going to make the assumption that many of you have learned some chassidus before, and I'm hoping that you've actually been watching the previous episodes, because this is a continuation. And you must know that the teachings of Chabad chassidus are broadly speaking not in the bucket of questions and answers or cliches. The methodology that Chabad Hasidus employs is opening with a number of questions sometimes, pointing out what seems to be inconsistencies in the text of the scripture or sometimes the writing of our sages, on occasion even something about Jewish tradition that seems to be out of sorts. This is just what you would call the segue. It kind of makes the case. And there are no answers, per se. There's a whole new perspective. And when you see things in a new light, and when you appreciate the bigger panoramic perspective, then the questions will invariably melt on their own. Oftentimes, towards the end of Hasidic discourse, we return to the original questions and say, and now you understand the kinds of things that perplexed us prior. This is a very difficult and challenging mimer to understand. I spoke yesterday to a, a close relative who's probably a lot, a lot smarter than I, and more learned than I, and and he said to me that, uh, I, I don't know what's going on in this memory. He said, I, I tried to share some of what I have understood. He said, it's, I don't even know what you're talking about, he said. This is not, not in my, uh, my arena. 
But I, I think that it has to be in our arena. This is a mimer that, as mentioned many times, was something the Rebbe directed the people who would sound the shofar, but sometimes also the people who would listen to the shofar, and that includes all of us. And it's, um, it's challenging. Heavy stuff. So buckle up, and we are going to delve into the codes of consciousness. We're going to be talking about, and I'll use the phrase in Hebrew because it's a phrase we're going to be using again and again. Oisies shebeseichel. Oisies shebeseichel. Now, an ot literally means a sign or a letter, like a letter of the, he- of the Hebrew or any alphabet. The alphabets are made up of otiot, letters. And seichel means intelligence, raw intelligence. And I want to draw a clear distinction between thought and intelligence. Because there is a lot of unintelligent thought. People can think about very foolish things. And people can stumble on an epiphany or have a great deal of intelligence even when they're not actively thinking. Now, invariably, if somebody is intelligent, and we all are to some degree, once you've understood or grasped an idea, at least in that epiphany state, you'll begin to think about it. That's called intelligent thought. But today we are going to learn that there are characters or letters or a code within consciousness. And when I say consciousness, I'm using that word very specifically, not as in a thoughtful kind of consciousness, but intelligent consciousness. Not thought, not rumination, not imagination. The moment a person grasps an idea, raw, pure intelligence. What difference does all this make? What does it have to do with the sounding of the shofar? Something that is achieved by virtue of listening to somebody blow hard and make a sound come out of the other side of a horn. That's a really good question. There is no quick answer. What we are going to be accomplishing today is discovering or uncovering yet another rung in the profundity and the depth of how we are to view the the greater picture of human consciousness, thought, communication, and endeavor. And when we have a better and a deeper understanding, it will bring us into a new appreciation of the shofar, ultimately enabling us to be privy to the Baal Shem Tev's secret meditations of the shofar. instead of talking about the Mimer. So let's learn. Let's learn a little. And I do promise you this. I'm going to try to offer a little bit of insight or a little tie-in to the sounding of the shofar at the end of today's class. That's going to be my own kind of contribution. Only so you shouldn't have spent an hour learning Torah and then, hey, I didn't hear anything about the shofar. So I'm I'm going to make a little suggestion at the end. In the previous episode, 
we began to explore a new territory at the outset of the Mimer. Over the course of the first six episodes, we mapped out this idea of communication versus thought or feelings that with, remain within the chamber of one's heart. And in the transition from inner thoughts or feelings that remain within a personal domain to the arena where they're being expressed to another or the public, we identified something called a memutza. It's a critical concept to understand that I'm not going to explain right now at all because I've explained it in great detail in earlier episodes and I refer you back to them. In a word, without explanation, the memutza is the nexus, the middleman, the facilitator. So really it's neither level but it can affiliate or relate to both levels. And that's so it becomes the bridge. It's what enables transition from one reality into the next reality. The Mamutza doesn't have a, a world of its own, a system of its own. It serves merely to bridge. You need to have a system. You need to have the, the dimensions and the definitions of every particular realm. That's the currency of that's existence. So the Mamutza doesn't really have that kind of reality because it isn't, if you will, a realm or an existence unto itself. Here is a simple case in point. You and I are capable of thinking about all kinds of things. Invariably, when we think, we will use language. Did you ever hear of the proverbial mother's tongue? It's a euphemism. It means the first language we learnt. The language we revert back to when all pretensions melt away. I'll never forget being called to the hospital bed of a very, very old man, a Holocaust survivor, who had grown up immersed in Torah tradition, immersed, very Hasidic family. And Nebuch, his whole family was killed, and he's gone through many changes. Let's just say that there was a good deal of his upbringing that didn't later directly inform his waking hours. And yet, when he had this uh, medical event, and he could barely communicate, the only words that would come forth were words of prayer. And his family didn't know what he was saying. And they said to me, can you please, could you please try and understand what he was saying? And I, I understood what he was saying very well. Because the Polish-accented words of prayer were familiar to me. So where does that come from? Probably it comes from the fact that whenever he would think to himself, that, that those were the the alphabet of his, of his consciousness. That's probably the, the way he thought. 
Of course, he assumed the new persona, and, and, and he lived in a Western country, and he spoke English, and he, and he didn't speak very much of the Yiddish he grew up with, but the language that he was familiar with, the language that he was able to communicate in most organically or naturally, the language he thought in, was the language of his childhood, and this is what we call, euphemistically speaking, mamalushan, mother's tongue. So we all think. If we were to speak as we think, it is quite possible that people would, A, not understand us because our thoughts might tumble out in a jumble. B, it might be very embarrassing because we're thinking about things as they apply to us in a very private or personal way and they were never meant for public consumption. So what happens is, you think about it, you come to a conclusion, you're ready to communicate, and then you go on to actually speak. And although you may be thinking and speaking in the same language, there is still what we call a gap to bridge between thought and between articulation or talkative communication. There's even a bigger gap if I'm thinking in one language and then I'm going to be speaking in a different language. Oftentimes you see people who are not proficient in a language have almost like difficulty. You, you can see them wrestling with, who hears, I'm thinking of it in one language which has a particular syntax and I have to translate it into another language, but the grammar and syntax is different and it becomes difficult. You, know, you can almost see that, that you know, the moment of hesitation. Or you can hear the way the person speaks a perfect English, but the diction or syntax isn't right. Both use language. Both use alphabet. Both use words. Both might even use periods, commas, an organization, if you will. Organize. People can organize their thoughts. They can organize their communication. And then there are times when people blurt, blurt things out. That's called a Freudian slip, although people were doing things like that many, many centuries before Freud ever came up with this idea. Because it's, it's not Freudian. It's factual. Sometimes people blurt things out. So their mouth is moving, but it's not really a verbal communication. It's a mental, thoughtful communication, a thought-based consciousness that ended up leaking out for others, perhaps, Unintended. Just going to see if there's any questions over here. No questions. Good. So where are we going? So we learned that there's a mamutza, a bridge between the spoken language and the thought language. And it is the first guttural sound a person might make, which is also part of a letter. So if somebody opens their mouth to say Aleph, that's the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the first thing they say is Ah. The Ah, which can lead into Aleph. But to say, I need my palate and my tongue. And to say Aleph, I need to have my lips. The Lamed and the Pei require more than just a guttural emission 
from the larynx. But if you open your mouth wide, you can't say anything but ah, not aleph. That's the mamutza. That's the mamutza. That, that becomes the bridge. I'm reviewing this because it's very important we understand this mamutza before we go on to today's facilitator of mamutza. In the previous episode, we discovered a whole new world, a whole new reality in which we are no longer seeking to bridge thought and spoken communication. Now we're talking about intelligence, raw intelligence, its reality, and then how this transmutes into thought so that we have something to think about. The thought is always active. People's consciousness is always aware. But the question is, is it intelligent consciousness? Or is it just selfish consciousness? Or is it people having thoughts of anger and frustration, self-pity, suicidal thoughts? People have all kinds of thoughts. Some of them are very unintelligent. And we have this principle that the, the thought is always in motion. You can't turn your thoughts off. So it depends what you'll feed it. It depends what you'll give your mind to think about. If you give your mind nothing to think about, don't you worry. It won't remain empty for long. It'll get filled with inappropriate things. It's just the way it is. Now, in certain disciplines, like the Eastern disciplines, meditation is designed to empty your mind. To empty, to empty your mind, which is unnatural. Because they believe that when your mind is emptied fully, then there will be a gush that comes from the deepest consciousness. Torah does not subscribe to this. We do not believe that our deepest consciousness is inherently sacred or positive necessarily. The neshama is, but that doesn't necessarily translate into consciousness. So to us, Torah Jews, meditation means to fill your mind, to fill your mind with Torah thoughts, to fill your mind with positive ideas to the point of full saturation, that there isn't an iota, a crevice in your mind that is left unoccupied. And when your entire mind is filled, filled with positivity, bathed, overwhelmed, saturated, with positive thoughts, with a holy thought, with a sacred thought, then that can put you into a holy, sacred, and exalted state of mind and awareness and consciousness. That's how we try to pray. That's, <laughs> if you want to know what, what Chabad, Hasidus, demands of its adherence insofar as prayer, that would be the answer. And then you pray with great focus. And then you pray with great devotion and great concentration. But focus, devotion, and concentration that is rooted in an, an expression of holy Torah thoughts, not personal selfishnesses or, or, or anxieties. And we have to talk about this mutza. So then the question is how does it go from the world of, of raw intelligence? How does raw intelligence shift into thought? Now, there can't be any language in thought. Thought is what we would call, for today's purposes, pre-consciousness, really. 
because thought is conscious, cogent thought. So we're talking about pre-conscious thought. We're talking about intelligence, which is the origin of wisdom, smart stuff. It means highly logical, things that actually make sense. The equation works. That's the difference between stupidity, foolishness, and intelligent things. Intelligent things, they, they rhyme, they make sense. Silly stuff is just all over the place. Makes no sense. Gibberish. So in our previous episode, we concluded with this phenomenal idea. And, and I, I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I spoke to somebody else who was very smart and very proficient yesterday. And he said I, he thought I might be right. I don't believe what we're learning about now is mentioned in the writings of Lurianic Kabbalah. I don't think this is talked about before, prior to the teachings of Hasidus. And that is that in, in Seichel itself that there is also a, a mamutza, where something goes from Seichel, from raw intelligence into cogent awareness, thought or consciousness. And then he said that the thought is made up of alphabet, that's the alphabet of consciousness. Oh, now he says, no, no, this, this first thought, the origin, the beginning of thought, is actually the end of intelligence. So intelligence ends where thought begins. <laughs> that doesn't mean thoughtful people are not intelligent. And it doesn't mean that thinking about an idea very carefully cannot yield a fresh gush of creativity or a better understanding of something. It just means that thought and intelligence are not one and the same because you can think about anything. Obviously, if you're going to think about things intelligent, it may well contribute towards the intelligence. It may help you come up with a new idea. But when you're thinking about a problem and thinking about it very carefully and analyzing all sides of this logical problem and coming to the conclusion that something doesn't add up and it doesn't make sense and suddenly you say, aha, that's what it is. Now I get it. That wasn't thought. That was an epiphany. That was intelligence, raw intelligence. And then and you're still like, what? What did I get? And you start to think about it, and you start to say, ah, yes, yes. And then you put it into letters of thought. So when you're thinking about something, you are not intuiting. You are not coming to uh, an understanding in and of itself. Now you're contemplating or thinking. And in contemplating or thinking, you may be stimulated to have an intelligent awareness or a development that is intelligent. Incidentally, it is a matter of a proven fact, and this is talked about in great detail in Jewish mystical writings, that articulating and verbalizing ideas helps us not only think, but helps us also into it. We get this, ah, once, as I'm talking and discussing it, we say, all of a sudden we have this awareness. We have this clarity. Well, that awareness and clarity is not thought, it's intelligence. And speaking about it somehow brings forth that very gush of creative intelligence. Or, or apprehension. How does that work? So actually it has something to do with the Kabbalistic idea of what's called Orot and Kalim. 
The or, the light, could be like an idea. The keli could be, for example, the metaphor. So the metaphor is just a metaphor, but if the metaphor is actually conveying an idea, it's a, oh, it becomes the vehicle that conveys the idea. So if you have a keli, a vehicle, an envelope, a convention in which you're able to proverbially contain the light, like the wick or the container of fuel that contains or holds on to the fire. But if, of course, the container of fuel is gone and the wick is taken away, what happens to the fire? There's nothing's able to hold on to it. It has to burn, it has to consume, it has to be fed. Only when it's being constantly fed can it remain. We have this idea in the laws of Shabbat that if somebody takes a fire and runs with it, even though the fire dissipates very quickly, but if somebody took a fire and ran with it and he went from a public domain to a private domain, he didn't actually do anything because the fire has no substance to it. But if you take a gachelet, a gachelet is a coal, so a coal is substance, it's flaming substance, it's burning substance, but it is substance, then you, you would be chayv, then you're obligated. So we have an interesting um, comment here that real emptiness is offset by Hashem's real total pervasive presence and oneness. Um, give my heart, uh, my dear friend, it doesn't exactly happen by itself. It doesn't happen by itself. Real emptiness is not offset by anything. Emptiness is emptiness. And when it comes to serving Hashem, we actually have to make efforts and take steps to build a better reality. It's like the Prime Minister of my country saying that the balances have a way of, budgets have a way of balancing themselves. It's one of the most inane things I've ever heard in my life, and I'm not an economist. Nothing works itself out. You need to work things out. Leaving things to their own devices is, by and large, a very bad idea. Very bad idea. So, you know, leaving your inner consciousness to its own devices, making the assumption that Hashem is going to just wash over me and give me this awareness is um, a bad idea. It's good if you're a prophet. And if you nullify yourself to the truth of Hashem, yeah, that, 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 that's, that's very effective. But unless you're a prophet and unless you're a tzaddik and on a higher level, it's not a great idea to trust your instincts or think that you will necessarily intuit holiness. Okay, be that as it may. So getting back to our point over here, we are talking about the concept then of pure intelligence. And the question is, are there any conventions or envelopes? Is there an alphabet? Are there otiot in pure intelligence? I know there's an otiot, there's an alphabet of consciousness which is called thought, and we all think in a language or in a conglomerate of different languages, which, by the way, when we speak, we probably have to speak in one language because the audience oftentimes understands one language, but we ourselves may think in a hodgepodge of languages. You know, if you're, uh, if you're raised uh, as I was, you're speaking Yiddish and, and, and English and Hebrew, uh, it's oftentimes that my thoughts are a jumble of, of different words and different terms and different descriptions. But typically when I address an audience, such as the, the audience who I intend to address, and I'm intending to address lay people, not people who are Torah scholars, not people who have background. I try to translate every word into English so that you will be able to understand these ideas as I do or perhaps even better. And 
when I think about these things, I am not thinking in the precise language that I'm using. I'm employing a different diction and a different syntax because I'm speaking to an audience in the Western world that I expect or assume speaks English well and doesn't necessarily understand other languages. So it wouldn't be appropriate for me to mix other languages in, but it might work very well for me personally as I'm thinking about something. So there's a language of thought and a language that's spoken. But does raw intelligence employ characters? Can raw intelligence have characters? Does that even make sense? If people have different ideas, well, then they're different. But what if people have the exact same idea, but they speak a different language? Is it inherently different? Does one person have an idea in Spanish and another person an idea in French, and yet a third have an idea in Russian? That's ridiculous. If three great scientists stumble upon the solution to the same problem in the same way, but they don't speak each other's languages, is it a different solution? Of course it isn't. Somebody uh, is, is stuck in a room with a number of people and they all don't communicate and they all don't speak the same language and they all realize at the same time that there's a solution, there's a way out of here. So it doesn't have to be discovered in Russian, French, Spanish, English, Hebrew or Swahili. It doesn't make a difference. The idea was, huh, we can actually push hard in that window and it'll open. Nobody ever thought of that. I don't know why. You see what I mean? It could be the same idea. So the same idea, the idea isn't limited to language, or so it would seem. But the Alter Rebbe says no. He says, he starts here, and we just began to talk about this, this is how we concluded the previous episode, that there is not only Isis HaMachshava, but there is also Isis and Seichel. So, if you're losing the old, the old, a print of the Sharat Kiyas, you'd go to page Reish Mem Hey, column one, Amud Aleph. If you're using the new print of Sharat Kiyas, it's a page 716, column two. And if you're watching on Facebook, please come over to YouTube. And then if you have questions, you can post them on the chat and I can see them and I thank everybody for their kind uh, comments and their intelligent uh, ideas, but most of all, if you have questions, this is a perfect opportunity for you to pose the question. And I'm going to try to keep looking at that screen. So the thing is like this. As is known, Raw intelligence also contains letters. There's an alphabet in raw intelligence. Ella, shehem behelem. The thing is, you wouldn't know because they're very much flying under the radar, very much concealed. They're dakis. They're very refined. It's so refined that it has so little to no substance that it's like transparent or invisible. They're klulim be'etzem koyach ha'seich They are, if you will, they melt into 
the energy of the raw intelligence itself. So it is, there is an alphabet. But that alphabet isn't seen or known or felt or, by the way, defined altogether because of the intensity of raw intelligence itself. So then how do you know? (laughs) How do you know it exists? If nobody's ever seen it, if nobody's ever touched it, if there is no terminology that we can use to describe its density, substance, or style, then who says it exists? Do you ever see electricity? Please don't say yes. Because it's actually impossible to see electricity. You're going to say, but I... I'm, I'm seeing this broadcast. Isn't, isn't that electricity? I'm, I'm, uh, I'm seeing light. Isn't that electricity? It's things that are fueled by electricity. It is not electricity in and of itself. That is to say, is the power on now? Of course it is. Well, how do you know? Do you see it? I don't see the power, but I see the lights on in this room. And I know when there's no power, there's no lights on in the room. I look right over here to the screen, and I can see A, an image. B, I can see comments. I can see numbers. I can see things. And the only way for me to be able to see those things is if we have power. So I know there's power, even though I can't see the power. Al-Tarebbe says, what's the proof that there are otiot, that there is an alphabet within raw intelligence? Shaharei onuroyim, because we can see sheyesh lekol koyach seichel bechinas that every thrust of intelligence has a language. Every thrust of intelligence has some kind of characters or alphabet. Incidentally, there is another manuscript in which it says, Shahari kol bar seichel. Not koyach seichel, but bar seichel. And that's a different word. A bar seichel means a person who possesses intelligence, a intelligence-possessing creature. So every person or every creature possessing intelligence has his or her own alphabet or methodology of articulation. The Hainu, that is to say, a way it expresses itself. You express it in a certain way. So if I'm expressing it this way or that way, then it must mean that there is a code within the intelligence itself. And here the Alter Rebbe brings, if you will, a proof. He proves the logic. As we see, that an idea, a particular idea, can be expressed by virtue of a particular alphabet, a particular syntax. A particular phrase or set of sentences. 
And yet the other one will use different words when he or she writes in order to communicate or articulate. Even though the intention is exactly the same. So what does this mean? What does this mean? I'm not embarrassed or ashamed to tell you that I broke my head on this for days. What's the proof that there is a language in raw intelligence? Because a person articulates things differently. Well, of course they articulate things different because their powers of articulation are different. So because my powers of articulation are different, I'm going to express myself differently. So, I, so I'm speaking in English. So the way I articulate the idea that we're studying now is in English, but I have colleagues who live in South America and they'll be teaching the same mimer and they will be speaking Spanish or Castellano or Portuguese and that works just fine. Does that mean that these characters, that English or Spanish or Castellano is found within consciousness or within raw intelligence? Consciousness, fine. Cogent thought, yes. Each one's thinking in his language. So when I have to think, I'm thinking in a language. And then when I speak, I'm speaking in a language. And depending on who I'm addressing, that's the language I'll use. But how does that prove that there is actually an alphabet within intelligence itself? In the way we can prove that there is electricity. I can't see it. I can't feel it. I can't taste it. I can't touch it. But I know it. Because I can see the things that are engendered or caused by it. And these things are symptomatic of electricity. How does a person sometimes know that he or she is sick? Did they, did they look inside? No, they, they had uh, symptoms. Oftentimes the chief symptom is pain because pain is actually a warning system that God put in place. If it wouldn't be pain, people would have all kinds of terrible things and they wouldn't make it. But the pain tipped them off. So Rahman al-Islam, the person has a, a, a medical event, he or she feels tremendous pain. And because they feel that pain, they know something's wrong. And because they know things wrong, they can heal it. And today we have incredible technologies and we're able to look inside and see pictures. But before we could see these pictures, doctors had to figure it out by virtue of the symptoms. And sometimes symptoms of one illness or one malaise can mask themselves and appear to be something else. And there's a power of diagnostics. And today, regardless of how skilled a person is in diagnosing an illness, the smartest thing is to get an MRI. Or a CT scan. And then you actually see. So how does that prove that there's letters? That there's letters in, intel, raw, in intelligence. Raw intelligence is not limited to thought or communication. Sometimes a person will have a really good idea, so they'll convey it to somebody else who speaks the language of a different group of people. Because these people won't listen to him. Either because, either because they don't speak his language, or because even though they speak his language, they're living in a different world and they can't relate to him. So this is person, he's relatable. 
I once heard that there are certain politicians, I don't know if this is true, who are actually far more intelligent than they appear or sound, but that they purposely dumb things down because they know that their voters or the mass of people that they're appealing to doesn't speak a highfalutin language, doesn't understand, and they just feel locked out and they're not, and not engaged with this, what you would call repertoire or fancy vocabulary. So they speak like at a fifth grade level. Because despite the fact that most of these people graduated high school, they read and write at a fifth grade level. There's a newspaper in Toronto called the Toronto Sun. I heard that they write at a fifth grade level. I don't know if it's true, but that's what, that's what I heard. And the point would be that the appeal, the kind of people they appeal to, do not read sophisticated vocabulary, don't have sophisticated vocabulary, don't appreciate sophisticated vocabulary. They need the information that, in a way that's simple and easy for them to absorb. They read the paper because they enjoy reading the paper. If you make it laborious, it's not something they enjoy. And then you have other newspapers that write for a very, very high level of education. You know, like a Wall Street Journal or like a... In Canada, the Globe and Mail, it's, like a, it's, like it's considered to be a, a well-heeled paper. A different kind of readership. But what's the point? I mean, I mean, I mean what, that's my, that is my point. What is the point? How did Dalton ever come to this conclusion that there are oiseus in Seichel when it would seem to me that the oiseus, that the letters only come later on? And that the letters of thought... Because that's what thought needs. Thought needs letters. It also needs something to think about. So it gets the something and then it uses the system. The something is the thought and the system is the letters. It's the system with which it thinks. Thought has a system. The system of thought employs characters. It employs alphabet. Communication, whether it's written or spoken, communicates and speaks or writes through language. You use the language to convey. But how does that prove that there is language within intelligence itself? The Alter Rebbe says it proves it. He just like kind of drops it there. Then he proves. He says, you see, it's one idea and it's written in different languages. He says, as is elaborated on elsewhere. So I knew right away that it has to be elaborated on elsewhere. And that if I would uh, do enough research and read enough, I'd, I'd, I'd get clarity. And thankfully, in this uh, redone print of the Shavit Kiyas, they have phenomenal sources, great footnotes. So I want to share with you some of what I researched, some of what I was able to, to come up with. And then I will tell you in English how I understand this, what, what, I, what, it, what it means to me, what it says to me. So this idea is talked about quite a bit in Chassidus. And here is, for example, the way the Alter Rebbe talks about it. I'll start with the way the Alter Rebbe talks about it in the Siddur. So in the Siddur, which in the, in the present uh, re- reprinted version is like two kind of two um, volumes. So if you go to volume one of the Siddur in Dach, and you go to page Pei Vav, 
Baltzeb actually speaks about this, which is probably why he doesn't elaborate it on here. He talks about uh, emotional sentiment. It's emotional sentiment. Emotional sentiment is found, you know, within what we would call emotionally driven or emotionally based thoughts, emotional thoughts. That's thinking about how I relate to others or others relate to me. This one stepped on my toes. This one didn't honor me and respect me. This one doesn't appreciate me. This one does love me and so on and so forth. It's not objective thoughts. It's thoughts about me, I. I like this. I don't like that. It's called a midah. So just in the same way that there is a midah within thought, he says there's also a midah, there's also like an emotional element within raw intelligence. Now, of course, that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Raw intelligence is objective by its very definition. So it's objective. Its objectivity belies the idea of subjectivity or how I feel about this. What do you mean how you feel? I don't care how you feel. What's right? What's wrong? What makes sense? <laughs> so this is this ridiculous joke they tell about, uh, about a man who, who called a school teacher and he said, tell me, what is 10 times 20? 10 times 20? It's 200. It's 200. It's okay. Thank you. Then he called a university professor, professor of uh, algebra and applied mathematics, and he said, so what is 10 times 20? And he said, well, is the, are you talking squared? Like, like, in what kind of equation? And he gives him a number of different possibilities. And then he calls his accountant, and the accountant, as the story goes, locks the door, closes the lights, shuts the shades, and he says, what do you want it to be? <laughs> this is, of course, a very silly joke, and uh, not one that the accounting professional, professionals necessarily appreciate. The point, of course, is this. Mathematics don't lie. Mathematics don't lie. Well, that's when they're real mathematics. Statistics don't lie. Sure, as long as they're real statistics, doctored statistics, doctored mathematics, that's not mathematics. And that's not really statistics. That's that's a lie that's using mathematics to tell a lie. That's a false, deceptive picture which is using statistical characters in order to paint a picture of something which is actually non-accurate. Real intelligence that doesn't... How do you feel about 10 plus 10 uh, equaling 200? I mean, 10 plus 20, uh, that's not how I feel. 10 plus 20 equals 200. It's a matter of fact. But he says, no, no, there is a midah shebaseichel. What's the midah shebaseichel? He says, the midah shebaseichel is when a person is, for example, a judge. So he's judging a situation, and he has to judge the case on its merits. And then at a certain point, he has to decide who's right and who's wrong. And both make very good arguments. Do I want this or not? So I can analyze it and, and, and I have different possibilities. And in the end, I have to make a decision of what I like best. This makes me feel good. That does, that's the way I'm going to go. 
those kind of decisions are, are somewhat emotive. They're like intelligent emotions, but they're emotions. And he says, and, and, that, and that intelligence transmutes from, from the mind, from pure, raw intelligence, it transmutes into emotion, eventually becomes a fully blown and developed emotion. So there are emotions within the realm of intellect. And then he says that just like there are emotions within that idea, he says there's also this idea of characters. And he talks about the Hegevudas, and he talks about the breaking up, so to speak, of sound, the different syllables that make up different sounds. And he says there's something similar to that process that's taking place within the thought just like within the articulated word, there's ah and then aleph, and I just use my, my tongue and my lips to say aleph, but in order to say ah, I just open my mouth. So he said, similarly, there is this idea that plays itself out within the, 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 the mind, the thought process, when I start to think about something, that just as I divide sounds into different syllables and consonants, so too I'm also dividing the ideas into language. Of course, it's not the same thing. It's a similar kind of thing. So I, I still don't understand. I'll tell you why I don't understand. Because when I talk about a sound that comes from the larynx, it is a basic sound. I say, wait one second. Since the sound comes from the voice box, and since when I'm talking to you, you're hearing different syllables, what's called hey, moitzoy, sapeh, the five different ways that sounds or letters or syllables could be made, as I explained in a tremendous detail in the earliest episodes. So if so, it must be that in that sound already all the sounds. No. The sound is a simple sound. Ah, is ah. But ah can be divided. The person is blowing into a wind instrument and it has little holes on it. It's called a flute. It's called a flute. And how does the flute make noise? Because depending on how many fingers you have, if you have working fingers, ten, ten working fingers, or at least four working fingers, and you can play the flute, and you know what to close and what to open, I'm talking about the simple flute, you know, that was just like a reed with little holes made in it. And depending how big the holes are, and depending how big my fingers are, and how deft my fingers are, I'm going to be able to make a bunch of different sounds. But what I'm blowing is just wind. When I blow through a, a, a narrow channel, it's going to make noise. That's the secret of the shofar, right? That's what a shofar is. A shofar is the world's oldest wind instrument. And it's organic. It's natural. It's found on the goat's or the sheep's head. You just have to take it off his head and empty it and drill a little hole. And once you do that, there you go, presto. You have the world's oldest wind instrument. And its sounds cannot be really controlled. And it's definitely not melodious. But the flute, now that's melodious. It could be very beautiful, in fact. The more skilled you are at controlling the sounds. But the more skilled you are at controlling the sounds is more about skill in the fingers. And it's more about a, a sense of tempo and music. It's, it's less about the fact that there are different a range of sounds within a sound. I don't even think there are a range of sounds within a sound. I think the sound is kind of harnessed and modified and, and restrained and released. And, that, and that's how you get different, different sounds. All right, so, so I, I still don't understand this. So this is, I'm just sharing with you there how I came to understand this because I think it will help you understand this also. 
again, we're learning very deep stuff now. Really, really deep stuff. Without Chassidus Chabad, it is impossible for regular people to have any kind of apprehension of where we're going to be when this class is over. You're going, you're going to be somewhere amazing. You're going to be like, wow, we're like climbing a mountain now. Okay, it takes time. I'm sorry. I, I, you can't climb mountains in two minutes. You've got to stay with me. We're going to climb this together. And, and you have to acclimatize. You know, you've got to reach a plateau and take a breath and take it in. And we're going to get there. And we're going to be able to look down and see the whole panorama, you know, like you see from the mountain summit. And it's like, wow, that's amazing. How did I get here? But this is how. So this, this, I, I still don't understand that. Whatever like seems to prove this, but, but he doesn't prove it. I, I don't understand the proof. So here's something else that the Alter Rebbe wrote. Alter Rebbe wrote that this is found in, in a mimer. I'm going to share this with you. This is a mimer, which is, there's a, a, a sefer of the Alter Rebbe's memorial, which is called Inyonim, Concepts. Concepts, some of them are longer, some of them are shorter, very interesting. So in this, uh, in particular, sefer, this is on page Kuf Pechas, or 188. So the Alter says like this. We have something called a mashpia and a mekabel. In plain English, a mashpia is a benefactor. He's got something to offer. The mekabel is prepared to receive. If I have good advice for you, I could be a mashpia of good advice, a dispenser of good advice, a source of good advice. And I actually want to give you the advice. I want to give it to you. But you're not ready to listen. I could have the best advice. I could have the advice that will actually fix your whole life. But if you're not ready to listen, nothing's going to happen. I'll talk to the walls. You won't, even, you won't even get it. You won't even hear it because your mind, you're closed-minded. So what does, what does a mashpia need to have? He has to have something to give. He has to have something to give. That's like a ridiculous uh, story of the, the, the wealthy man in the shtetl. You know, like uh, the Shalom Aleichem plays and the fiddler on the roof kind of paradigm. He's a lot of money. He's a very wealthy man whatever that meant. And uh, the people would come and ask him his advice and, you know, like, you know, like in the Fiddler on the Roof, uh, if I were a rich man, all the people would come and ask my advice and I'd stroke my chin to make myself look all intelligent. So the guy was like, you know, he's a wealthy man and um, everybody's asking his advice. And then he lost his money, sadly. And he said to his wife, he says, you know, I, I I don't understand, he says. He says, money I don't have, but good ideas. I still have those. Well, actually, he never had any good ideas. <laughs> what, what was he able to contribute before funds? That's all. The people came to him to get the funds. They needed the money. But he wouldn't just give the money because people like to feel good about giving. So they had to make him feel good. So they made him feel good. Is this, please give me some advice. Oh, by the way, I need some money to carry out that fantastic, amazing idea that you just gave me. Oh, you like my idea? I'll be happy to fund it. Then he didn't have any more funds. And his ideas were not of value to anybody. So he was a mashpia, and then he wasn't a mashpia anymore because what he wants to offer and what he has to offer are not necessarily one and the same. 
What if somebody has wealth and somebody refuses to take? They are prepared to live a life of austerity. They refuse to take help. This is a mashpia. He's got the money. This is a person who doesn't want to take. His dignity is worth more to him than privation. He'll suffer privation. He'll suffer hunger. He'll suffer homelessness. He won't suffer indignity. There are such people. He's a mashpia. The other was not a makabal. Anyway, that's two examples. Gibmine Hart thinks that his tongue might be like a flap actuator. Yeah, sounds about right. Okay. So we have a mashpia. And the mashpia is going to share ideas. Let's say he's a great teacher. He's a, he has a lot of wisdom. He has insight. So this person with wisdom, this person with acumen and strategy, wants to share his ideas. So how does he do so? He articulates. He shares. He expresses those ideas. The gift of gab in and of itself is meaningless. I mean, you, you can hire him to be a radio announcer or be a, an, an actor who performs a mindless role with great fervor and emotion, repeating the lines that they memorize. But if, in truth, they don't know what they're saying or they don't have any intelligent ideas, it's not really a teacher. It's not a wise person. The wise person has ideas. And you could have two wise people. And they both have exactly the same idea. Yet, despite they have the same exact idea, they both have a very different way of communicating the idea. Even if they speak the same language. Yesh b'neihem shinu They use a vastly different syntax. Each one possesses conventions, envelopes, vehicles through which he or she conveys the profound ideas and messages and they convey it through a different conveyor belt. Now, this language is uniquely suited to convey those ideas. Whether they are spoken ideas, or Isis Hadibur, or Isis Aksab, or they're written. So the Alter Rebbe says, if the idea is the same exact idea, then how is it expressed in syntax so vastly different? If it's the same idea, it should be expressed in the same way. So he says, that clearly there are chaf-based klolim in the nefesh asichlis. There are 24, I'm going to use the word principles for lack of better terminology, in the intelligent soul, in intelligent consciousness, not thoughtful consciousness. Shehein chaf-based mine keilim hamagbilim lohovi shefa haseichal These are different ways in which intelligence is 
framed, in which intelligence is contained, in which the ideas of intelligence are systemized. There's a system. You have, everything needs a system. So there needs to be a system of intelligence in order to do something with the intelligence. And it comes, it comes in a variety of codes. These 22 letters, they go through a myriad of transitions. And in the various transitory states or, 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 or evolutionary periods or, 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 or experiences, it, it, it gets expressed in different ways, in different realities, in different worlds. So a person could think in one syntax, this is his thought syntax. He thinks things one way, he writes differently, and he speaks differently. There's a common denominator, but each one uses different language. So in the same way that it is possible for a person to think things through very carefully, and then afterwards to speak about them, and afterwards to commit them to writing. And when it's committed to writing, and when it is spoken, and when it is thought, although there is very similar syntax, and one necessarily leads to the next, they are different. But the common denominator is the syntax, and the language is same. It's only that the, the spoken word, and the written word, and the thoughtful words are not the same syntax. One is, one is how this person thinks, the other is how this person writes, the other is how this person speaks. And there are people who are phenomenal speakers, but they are not gifted when it comes to writing. And there are people who are phenomenal writers, but they're not gifted when it comes to speaking. And there are people who are original thinkers of the highest order, but not particularly articulate. They can, they can somehow get their ideas out to people who have a very, very refined ability to understand what they're saying, even though nobody else does. And those other people can write their ideas. Maybe they're scribe. But this person never writes on their own. I was once in Yerushalayim for Shabbos. I was there many times for Shabbos. But I was on a particular Shabbat with a group of people from our community. And we davened on Shabbat morning in the Tzemach Tzedek Shul. And probably the most famous congregant or parishioner in that little shul on Rechov Chabad in the Rova, just off the Cardo, in the Jewish quarter, is uh, in, the, in the Tzemach Tzedek Shul, was Harav Adin Evin Yisrael, known to most people in the world as Rabbi Steinmetz. So I was, you know, I introduced, I came over with these friends and I introduced them. I said, uh, Din, if I may, I'd like to introduce you to some people. And, and if you knew Rabbi Evan Yisrael, you know that he, did, he wasn't, he had no airs about him and he didn't flatter anybody. He was brutally honest and direct. And he said, uh, why, why do they want to meet me for? He said, I'm, I'm, I'm not charismatic, I'm not attractive. He said, uh, let them read my writings. Let them read my writings. And the truth is that he wasn't so articulate when he spoke. That wasn't his gift. He, some people have a beautiful way of speaking. The words are pearls. They, they are wonderful communicators. 
they don't necessarily have the most profound things to say, but they're fantastic communicators. And when they know what they want to say, they can say it better than just about anybody else. They're not necessarily great writers. You know, I'm, I'm just using figures uh, that are known to people, and this is not an endorsement or a rejection of anybody. Not my, who am I to? But the, you know, um, former Israeli Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is a phenomenal communicator. One of the best communicators in the world. He's he's fantastic. I never read anything that he wrote that blew me away. I said, "Wow, look at look at look at this writing. What what style?" I don't think he's known as a writer. But he's known as a speaker. He's known as a communicator. There are people who have the power of oratory. And they don't have that same ability when it comes, when it comes to writing. Because the truth is that the literary world and the spoken world are different worlds. But the person will speak as he or she writes as he or she thinks, only in each world in a unique way, because each world has its unique markings. There are some people who are phenomenal thinkers, phenomenal speakers, and phenomenal writers. I don't know. Why not? Maybe not. And here's what Al-Tadab is saying, though. He's using phenomenal language here. He's saying, it's Chavbeis Klolim. So, so I was getting stuck in this. I said, like, I don't understand. How could this be? There, there can't be an alphabet. How could it be a language? It's an idea. If a person speaks one language or speaks another language, if they came to the same idea, is it a different idea because they thought in a different language? Of course, the answer is no. But the Alter Rebbe says it isn't language. He says it's Chof Beis Koiches. And that's where I got the title for today's class, which I pulled off popular culture, but it's, it's a code of consciousness. It's a code. It's not really an alphabet. It doesn't really have letters. Here's a metaphor that I came up with. And I know it's non-perfect and non-exact, but it, it helped me and maybe it'll help you understand this as well. One of the reasons that one cannot use a microphone, for example, to listen to the Megillah, forget Zoom, can't use a microphone, can't use a telephone, can't even use a microphone if you're in the room. If you're not hearing the actual voice of the Balkorah, you cannot, you cannot fulfill the mitzvah. You know those big fancy temples where they have a microphone for the Balkorah or for the chauffeur? Nobody's fulfilling the mitzvah because what are they hearing? When you hear something through an amplifying electronical device, what happens is the sound is absorbed and translated into electronic impulses. And then, for simplicity's sake, it's spit out from the other side and it retranslates. It translates into impulses and the impulses retranslated back into sound. So what you're really hearing isn't the original sound. What you're really hearing is the sound of electronic impulses or a sound that is triggered by electronic impulses. But the electronic impulses were triggered by a voice. The voice translates into electronic impulses. The impulses in turn translate into what mimics a human voice. Listen to the, the microphones if you will, or the, the amplification systems of the 1950s, or 1940s. They sound wooden. Listen to the, the, to, to the recordings of, 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 of movies in the 40s. It's like, it's like laughable. It, it, it sounds electronic. It doesn't sound human. Listen to the radio broadcasts of the 30s. It's a different, it's a different kind of radio broadcast. I listen to stereo sound today. 
freaking incredible how, how far electri electrical engineering has come over the last century. But the point is this. The point is that what you're hearing is not actually the sound. And that's why they can, they can play with this. They can use filters for the voice. And then you can electronically kind of improve or change. You can adjust the sound. You'll hear a different kind of sound. You have these people who are sound technicians. They know how to adjust the sound to make the sound right. By the way, some of you complain about the sound in the system. It's not simple. Getting the sound right is not simple because I am not a machine. I'm a human being. And sometimes I get really excited like right now and I'll speak in a, in a voice that's filled with excitement because I'm excited, enthusiastic about this. And sometimes I'm trying to be even and relaxed and my voice will drop. But I, you know, I, I, I got complaints. I said, yeah, you got to speak in the same tone all the time. But then I'd be a robot. So this interfacing of uh, technology and, and human beings, it's not all it's cracked up to be. It's not perfect. It's a problem. You need an equalizer. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking that this is like, in the Seichel, there has to be a system. The system in Seichel is called a language. It's called an alphabet. It's called Otir. It's a code. But the code, the way, the way your intelligence is, is the way your will, thought will be, which is the way your writing will be, which is the way your spoken words will be. Because one necessarily translates into the other. I'm not talking about uh, engineering things artificially. You don't have artificial engineering. It's organic. The way you speak is who you are. And the way you write is who you are. And the way you think is who you are. And it's all because the idea comes to you. And when you get that idea, when you go, wow, I got that idea. I have it. I figured it out. You're thinking in your system. So it's like a language, but it's not really a language. This is an incredible idea. This is Oisius Shebeseichel. This is the, the alphabet, but that's a bad word. It's the code of intelligent consciousness, not thought. Here's the way the Rebbe Rashab puts it in a mimer that was delivered in the year 1887. And, and again, this, seeing these different Hasidic manuscripts really sharpened and crystallized it for me. And I could, it just started to fully resonate. He says, we see, Shalafiteva mohus, this is on page Kufim Zayin, if you want to look in the Sefer yourself. Lefiteva mohus ha'etzem ha'seichel. In accordance with the very organic, essential nature of the intelligence. Yishavami menu ha'esius. That's where... The letters, the actual alphabet, the arrangement of letters comes. So, I mean, every writer has the same alphabet. Every writer has the same grammar. Every writer has the same vocabulary. Is that the difference between a phenomenal writer and a very ordinary writer? It's just like vocabulary? Of course not. There's a creative genius in writing. There's a way with words, a wordsmith. There's a poetry. There's a, there's a, there's a lilt and an energy and a, and, a, and, a, and a thrust and a syntax and a style. And it's all about putting certain words together. 
Just like letters make up words, words make up sentences, sentences make up paragraphs, and there's unique ways of saying things. It's like a, it's like a tapestry, but you have to know how to weave it. And every artist weaves a different tapestry or paints a different picture. They all have the same paint, same pigment, the same strands, but a different picture emerges. Why is one person's thought in this arrangement of language, in this arrangement of alphabet, the other one uses language differently? Why? It's one intelligence, it's one idea. He says this is because there's because the predecessor of alphabet, the code that precedes what we call alphabet is already engraved into the intelligence. And he uses the word engraved here, and I think this is extremely precise, because when we talk about writing, we talk about taking a foreign substance like ink and fusing it onto a paper. But when we talk about engraving, we engrave into the substance itself. So in intelligence, it's not a language. Language is not me. Language is somebody out there. So whoever created the English language, or, or, as it is today, I have to work. That's the language I get to work with. And I can study the science of language and I can learn about etymology and I can come to appreciate the history of certain words and that'll give me a creative edge of how to use those words but ultimately I'm using something which is outside of me. I'm using a language. Think about that in a very camp, mundane metaphor, the, the typesetting of the Middle Ages. You know, you get a bucket of letters. A bucket of letters. Pick an A, pick a B, pick a C. You will form the letters. You will, you will put them together. The same typewriter, the same computer, it's the same letters. But the arrangements are different. And the arrangements ultimately are utilizing a foreign substance. So it's written or it's spoken. But here we talk about engraved, it's engraved in the intelligence itself. It isn't something foreign, it's from the intelligence itself. But just that intelligence will express itself in the, this way because these are the codes that were engraved. Listen to... Listen to the way the Friedrich Rebbe puts it. This is a mimer, a Hasidic discourse. From the Friedrich Rebbe, which was uh, kind of rearranged and, and reprinted in. Um, in 1949, but originally it was delivered by the Friedrich Rebbe in 1924. And it's in, I'm, I'm going to share with you from Sefer and Marim Tafshin Tess. So the Friedrich Rebbe says this. You have sometimes, he says, Gimel Chachamim, three great millennial sages. And they are saying, They're articulating the same idea but they're all using otiyot acherim, they're using different letters. 
And here he chooses, and this is my addition. I don't know if it's accurate, but I'll soon tell you why I'm saying this. The Rif, the Alphas, Rabbeinu Alphas, who lived in North Africa. The Rambam, who lives in Spain and North Africa and ultimately Egypt. And Rashba, who lives also in Muslim-dominated Spain. Now, all of these three sages were extremely proficient in the same language, as I understand it. They all wrote in Hebraized Arabic, and they spoke Hebraized Arabic. So he very carefully chooses. These are all three Sephardic sages. Sephardic meaning speaking Arabic. Arabic speaking and possibly thinking. Oimrim Svara Achas. They can all be saying the same idea. The same concept of jurisprudence. The call Echod Medaber Belshoinei. The Rif is very different from the Rambam, and the Rambam is very different from the Rashba. Harayasvara hi Achas Bekulam. Says the Friedrich Rebbe. It's the same idea, same concept. Rakhilufia Oisius. But they're using different letters. They're arranging their words and their thoughts using the same Hebrew language. But it reads differently. When the Rambam wrote something, he wrote it like Rambam writes it. As the Rambam wrote, when the Rif wrote Halacha, he wrote it as he did. When the Rashba wrote Halacha, in three sages, by the way, he wrote Halacha. In his response, he writes, This is the way, this is the syntax, not just the letters, the syntax with which he revealed his grasp of the matter. And therefore, when you analyze very charitably and carefully and precisely the syntax and the verbiage used, then you're being medayik in the oisius. When you're learning, you're saying, okay, he used this word. He, he, he added a vav or, or he, he put it in, in this way. So the diok is not in the svara. The diok is not in the idea or the concept. The diok, the precise analysis, the careful Review is on the words. However, there is something about letters that convey an energy and an an awareness of that which is even more profound than the intelligence itself. And, And by analyzing the words, I can psychoanalyze the author and come to a appreciation of how the author understood, a nuance within the author's understanding. Now, if, if words were just superficial, then, then they would all use the same words. And you wouldn't be able to analyze those words to discover anything. You couldn't mine the words. So there's a code. There's the code that leads to this particular kind of articulation. Here is a... Similar mimer from the Friedrich Rebbe. This is printed in Sefer HaMemar and Tafshin Yud, the Memar of 1950, but these Memarim were actually reconstituted from 1932, Tafshin Sadiq Beis. So here, the Friedrich Rebbe says this. He says that the code is, when you have a language which is a machshava, so whatever, you're thinking in a language. But when you have language which is couched within 
intelligence, raw intelligence itself. He says they are mechusen. They are entirely submerged. In the, the dazzling radiance of the idea itself eclipses whatever kind of vessel or system is used to contain it. It's like glass. But they are aseus. There's, there's, still, there's still something containing it. And he says, you see, because three sages, each saying the same exact idea, but everybody says it, and here the Friedrich Rebbe deals with something called Machshava of Machshava. He says in each of the three levels, in thought, there's the thought of thought, the speech of thought, and the action of thought. In speech, there is the thought of speech, the speech within speech, and then the action within speech. And then he says the same thing is true about action in and of itself. And I'm not going to elaborate on this. If you think about it, if you, you'll, you'll be able to understand it. I, I, did, I did teach about this on, on other occasions. Ukamoi, he says, Harif, Harambam, Vaharosh. Here, very interestingly, he uses not the Rashba, but the Rosh. He says they're all saying the same idea. However, the idea is said in a way which is different. Different words. And he says, the words are not the novel thing. The idea is the novel thing. Well, if the idea is the novel thing, it should all sound the same. You know, like uh, people choose a Hallmark card. It's the same Hallmark card. There could be a thousand people today who sent the same Hallmark card. Each of them means something else, but it comes across. I love you. I love you. I love you. Each one means something else. So he says, even though there's such a vast distance between raw intelligence itself and articulated words, but he says, nonetheless, it has to come from somewhere. Something is caused by something higher, by something higher, all the way to pre-consciousness. Now, there's a fascinating note here, which I believe is authored by our Rebbe, in which the Rebbe points out that the Alta Rebbe, when he says something similar in Lakota Teira, he says, Teisface, this is the French sages who commented on the Talmud, the Rosh, who was a German rabbi who escaped from Rudolf V, and ends up living in Spain, but really is a Yiddish-speaking German rabbi. And the Rana, Beno Nissen, who lives in France. So this is all Alsace-Lorraine sages. And he says, uh, why does the Friedrich Rebbe bring the Rift, the Rambam, and the Rosh, when the Alter Rebbe brings Teisvis, Rosh, and the Ran? And he says, very simple. Because the Alter Rebbe there is talking about ideas, the jurisprudence of an idea. And when it comes to jurisprudence, or elucidation of the jurisprudence, the Teisvis elaborates, uses a lot of language if you learn Teisvis. The Rush is a little more concise, but also elaborate. There's also something called Teisvis or Rush. And the Ran also is elaborate like that. So these are three elucidators. He said Rashi, however, is very, very concise. The syntax is similar. The Ran, the Teisvis or Rush, or the, the Rush and the, and, 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 and the Teisvis, but the, their method of elucidation with all of its sophisticated verbiage, is different. It's all different. And by the way, the Talmud scholars analyze the language in each one to discover the deeper profundity. But he says here, the Friedrich Rebbe is talking about not elucidation 
of the jurisprudence, but resolution. Halachic decisors. The Rif wrote in halachic prose. Rambam writes in halachic prose. Rush writes in halachic prose. Now I'm pointing out that here the Friedrich Ebert says Rashba, and, and uh, I'm suggesting that maybe this has something to do with the way they spoke a common language because he's making a, somewhat of a different point. At any rate, the upshot of all of these different sources is that now it becomes clear to me. Now we can return to the Alter Rebbe's Mimer because now it's really started to make sense to me. So, and and Alter Rebbe says, it's Kameshikos and Makamacher. And now that you and I have an understanding of this, Ubechinas Oisius Halalu, these very words, but I mean characters, or really a code, impulses, it's conceptual, it's not actual. Haklul and Bekayechasechel, which are submerged, which are overwhelmed, saturated, existing within the radiance of the idea itself of raw intelligence. Just like, for example, if you light a candle in the sunlight, to use the Talmudic adage, you don't see the candlelight until the sun sets, and then suddenly the candlelight appears. But the candlelight didn't arrive from somewhere. The candlelight was there before also. But the radiance of the candlelight was so much dimmer than the radiance of the sun that it was simply eclipsed. So here, the Koyach HaSeichel eclipses the existence of this code. And that's why you can't see the code. Because the Seichel is It is so much loftier, so much further conceptually removed from the alphabet of thought, which is very different than the alphabet which is spoken, or the alphabet which is written. The alphabet which is written has a form. The alphabet which is spoken has a sound. The alphabet that is thought has neither. So it's a much more refined form of language. But even that refined form of language is eons away from the code that exists within the consciousness of intelligence itself. And here he gives a beautiful example. The Rambam writes about 13 principles of faith and he talks about the oneness of God. And a century later, this is committed to writing and it's written in poetic prayer form. And the poetic prose of Adon Olam encapsulates the essence of what a Jew believes. And this is the reason that in many communities on a person's deathbed, when they say Shema Yisrael, they also say Adon Olam. And we say it every single day in Adavaning. We read Adon Olam. And in many communities, they end the service with Adon Olam. It's a very powerful thing. And there are many beautiful songs. What any Yid who is somewhat shul engaged or involved usually will know Adon Olam to a song. In many, many synagogues, the way they conclude the service, especially in Minig Ashkenaz. So the Otiot of Adon Olam, it's stirring spiritual poetry. Most people don't tend to think of Adon Olam as brilliant, as deeply profound, but rather as moving and poetic. Poetry is very different from high-level thought or intelligence. Poetry is emotional. There's something profoundly deep and intelligent about ideas of Adon Olam. What does it mean, the oneness of God? How many people can actually speak cogently about the oneness of God? What does that even mean? Adon Olam expresses it in in a brilliant way. It goes over many people's heads. In God's mastery. He is the master of the universe. 
A person could think about the idea of Adon Olam. Adon Olam means that when you got, God forbid, into an altercation with somebody that didn't happen by accident, that the person who rear-ended you didn't rear-end you, Hashem decided you should be rear-ended. The fact that that guy was busy texting and that's the reason that he rear-ended you makes him a bad guy and he will some pay the price, so to speak. He did something which endangered the life of somebody else. That's not good. But the person who was going to be rendered, Allah Nizik Nigzer. Understand? God doesn't take away the freedom of choice of somebody to drive recklessly, and at the same time, the person who got hurt was going to get hurt anyway. That means Adonolam. That's a figment of Adonolam. There is nothing that happens in this world that isn't under the mastery of God, despite the fact that we have freedom of choice. And that sounds on the surface like an enormous contradiction. This is not the place for it. I'm just saying it's like deep stuff over here. So there's a haskolava. A person could think about the concepts of Adon Olam and he's not even thinking about the beautiful poetry of the words. Why doesn't he think about the words? Why doesn't he notice the poetry? Because he's thinking about the ideas. And the idea is so much more powerful that it simply eclipses it. So here, in the way the Rebbe Rashab puts it in the famous Hemshech of Ayim Beis, in the first, in volume one of page uh, Kuflam Ates, he says, hmm. I just lose, I just lose you guys? Am I still live? Because the computer just went down. Are we still live? Yeah, seems we are. Okay. Check. Still live, okay. Somebody wants to type on the chat. Michal David, are you here? Are we, are we on still? I don't know what happened there. Yes, okay, good. So the Rebbe Rashab says... When a person ruminates on the words of Adon Olam, the spiritual poetry, without focusing on the theology of what it embodies. So this is like the thought, the spoken part of thought. There's the thought part of thought where you're thinking about the idea. And then when you're thinking about the words or the poetry or the prose, that's like the dibur of dibur. Because you're focused on communication. You're marveling at the precise and exquisite nature of the poetry. And is it beautiful, extraordinary prose. But then when the person's focused on the ideas, he transcends that entirely. And that's the, the machshava. Of Machshav. 
the thought of thought. So at any rate, here the Alter Rebbe says something fascinating. In the parentheses, Venimzo. So we find ourselves now informed that there are, there's an alphabet. The Hebrew alphabet is 22 characters. There are 22 proverbial characters which are spiritual, non-literal, in intelligence. Just like we have within thought, also the thought uses the alphabet. But in the thought, the alphabet is a lot closer to the written or spoken alphabets. But you cannot compare it to the letter, the articulated letter of the simplest voice, because when you go, ah, that sound doesn't have lamid and pei to make an aleph. The simple sound doesn't have the 22 sounds in it. He says, in the mind, the alphabet divides itself up without an external device, so to speak, like the tongue or the slips that are allowing the sound to escape and the consonants to be enunciated in a certain way. So, so it's a little different. It's a little different. This is like so amazing. If you're still with me, this is, this is mind-blowing. I don't know if anybody ever talked about this before, Dr. Rebbe. It's articulated like this. Like. So he says now, So the code of intelligence, the oisius of the seichel itself, are like the mamutza, going back to our bridging. It's bridging the worlds. On one hand, they're chiseled, engraved into intelligence itself. But there's no, there can't even be any, any, any characters, any code, any limitation, any syntax, any system. But there is a system. It's nonetheless a system. And systemization is the origin of language. In Cain, if so, if we are to understand the alphabet, the alphabet or the code of intelligent consciousness to be the bridge to the thought which uses, employs language, when you need to think, I don't know, once you go away from pure intelligence and you start thinking about it in a particular system of prose, that there has to be that's like the first spoken, um, pardon me, thought letter. The beginning of thought. Thought has to be seeded at some point. And that's the Rishon L'chof Be'ez Eisius HaMachshava. So there's a certain point where it goes from raw intelligence into thoughtful contemplation and there's, there's some kind of bridge and I don't know, I couldn't, I can't understand, I don't know, I have a metaphor for this. That there's some kind of bridge where it goes from the syntax of a code, of a sequence, of some kind of framing of intelligence, and now it's moving into the language, the alphabet of consciousness or thoughtfulness, and then there's a bridge moment. And that bridge moment is like the ah that bridges the feelings and speech. And I don't know exactly what it is, but this is all a sense of how we go from level to level to level to level. And this is all within ourselves. It could be in a split second. But if we think about this carefully, we can identify all of the levels of where something comes from our, from our intelligence into our thought, 
into our speech, into our action, and each has a bridge to bridge the gap. But it needs this bridge. Because the code of consciousness is eons loftier and more refined than the alphabet of thoughtful consciousness. Like we talked about in the making of this simple guttural sound, which is also far removed, the alphabet of thought is far removed from audibility or sounds. So here we have yet another bridge, so to speak, another facilitator, another middleman. This first glimmer of where it goes from raw intelligence into thought. So there is an inner voice, the inner voice, and the inner voice is that of understanding, because understanding is the power to systemize, the power to, if you will, compartmentalize an idea. That's how you understand it, you analyze it. So it's bina, that's how you build the idea. It's by virtue of this system, it's by virtue of this understanding, it's by virtue of this ability to compartmentalize, to organize the machashava, the thought, into an alphabet of chaf bezeisius, the alphabet of thoughtful consciousness. And all the way that that's sewn together, because language has a myriad of ways you can fuse the letters and the words. This is the same idea of what we spoke about in the earliest episodes of the five forces of restraint or division called Menatzbach. The Ema, Ema is mother, refers to Bina. This is about systemization. This is about compartmentalization. This is about the careful analysis that serves to systemize thought. Which is akin to the way a raw sound gets enunciated into different letters, syllables, and consonants. From the He Meitzoas, from the five different expressions or ways that sound is controlled, Kiedu as is known, and the Altarebbe finishes off with a marvelous little acronym, Vidai Lemaven. And if you're smart enough and you'll spend enough time thinking about this, and we all are, we can all think about this till we understand it and discuss it until we make sense out of it. Al Rebbe says, I've given you enough to chew on and figure it out. So what does this have to do with Rosh Hashanah? So there's this, there's this beautiful mimer from the Rebbe Rashab from the year 1908, and it's about Shema Makim. I actually shared this a few days ago in my class on Tillam. And, and, and the... Rebbe Rashab speaks about this sense of obedience and following God, falling into step with the will of God. This is what happens a whole year. And then he says, in the month of Elul, we seek out God in a more, in a more personal way, in a more inner way. We try to connect with God in a deeper, more profound way. And then we reach the sounding of the shofar in Rosh Hashanah and the days of penance that follow. And as we talked about in that class from Kisvi Arizal, this is a, a process that continues to resonate throughout these 10 days. What happens is that you're able to reveal the deepest rung, the deepest and most profound expression of your neshama. 
But that's what this is all about. Because the things we spoke about today, like, you, 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 don't, e- you don't even know the meaning of depth until you are identified. So when you have this whole thing sketched out for you, this whole panorama, you say, wow, this is deep. And that gives you a sense of how one minds the inner consciousness, of how one goes deep into who we really are, what, what really makes up, makes us up. And, and to be able to connect to God on that level, this is really what, what sounding the shofar is all about. And how this flows into the Chavonah of Shem Tev and how this ultimately becomes the embodiment of what the shofar represents, for that you have to keep on coming back. In our next episode, The Theory of Everything, we're going to have an amazing perspective on creation itself as per the illuminating ideas that we've learned over the past two episodes. Thank you so much for joining. Um, I'm grateful for your participation. I hope that you were able to understand and appreciate. And I, uh, I believe that if we continue to work our way at this and to understand the deepest, profoundest concepts with our minds, that it necessarily filters through into our heart. It'll create meaningful emotional connection that we all seek with our Kaddish Baruch Hu, and that of course will overflow into a life that is filled with holy actions with deeds that are in keeping with Baruch Hu, with the will of God accelerating the process of universal redemption and bringing the coming of Mashiach Bimheira will be a menu amen thank you again for joining have a beautiful day